Last week was our annual meeting. And if you weren't there for that, you missed out. It was really a lot of fun. We, uh, we got to stop and celebrate and rejoice over what God has done at and through GVF. You can go listen to the podcast online. After that, we, uh, we had a pizza reception, which was fun. And then after that, we had a pie-in-the-face fundraiser. And I got epically pied in the face. Thank you, Nathaniel, wherever you are. Uh, that was fun, too. And uh, so you missed out on a great time. Now, the week before that, though... Paul introduced this series called That's Offensive, and uh, just judging by the number of emails and the responses that we got from a lot of you, um, the very fact that we're doing this series was offensive for some of you, and we're cool with that. Um, we're, we're really good with that, and here's why. Here, here's really our heart behind this that I want you to hear this morning. Before we ever get into today's subject, this is what I want you to hear. Um, our goal in this is not to offend anyone. It's really not. It's not to offend you. Uh, and it's not to dogmatically force you to think or to believe in a certain way. Really, our goal in this is, is to, if I can put it this way, to force the issue, to, to press on this issue and looking at some different subjects that make us wrestle with the authority of God's word. And to bring us to this question of, okay, what is my ultimate and final authority? Is it going to be me? Or is it going to be God's word? What is it? What is it that defines my physical and spiritual and moral reality? What is it that's going to determine for me what's right and wrong? What's good and bad? What's ugly and beautiful? What is it that has that right in my life? And that's the issue that we want to kind of press on this morning. Uh, As Paul laid out a couple of weeks ago so well, there's this trajectory of thought and philosophy when it comes to how we're determining right and wrong, how we're determining what we believe. And we've come to a place today in society where it is predominantly our personal experience that determines our reality. And so it's up to me to decide that this is right and this is wrong for me as though somehow we are like gods and we can reach into the cosmos and change physical, moral, even spiritual reality to fit my personal preferences. That's where we find ourselves today. In fact, I would take it a step further and say that today, increasingly, we live in a society where it's not just about each one of our individual personal uh, expressions and experiences because that would imply that, that they're all equally valid. So my personal experience would be equally valid with anyone else's. Today we find ourselves increasingly in a world where, in a society where it's the majority rule. And so there are personal preferences, personal experiences that trump other people's. And so my personal experience is only valid insofar as it agrees with the accepted majority position of popular opinion. And so we are expected Everyone is expected to get in line and to not only do, but to believe and to think and to say what goes along with what everyone else has decided based on their personal experience. And so in a very real way, we find ourselves, uh, like Isaiah warns us, where people are calling evil good and darkness light, and we're expected to join in. And we're expected to get along with everybody else. To stand up and as the emperor walks by to praise and gush over his beautiful new clothes. You look amazing. While while he's walking by naked. And so our goal here, right, is not to offend you with these subjects particularly. That's, That's really not the intent. It's to bring us to this point of asking, okay, what is our final authority? What is it that's going to be determined what's right or wrong for us? Is it going to be my personal opinion, my personal experience? Is it popular opinion? Is it my Facebook feed, or is it going to be this book? Is it going to be God's word? Because however I answer that question determines everything else about me, all right? 
So that's, that's where we're aimed at with this series. And over the next three weeks, this week and the next two weeks, that's what we're really trying to get at. All right, now, I've probably already offended some of you, so uh, since I've already accomplished that, let's go ahead and dive into what we're going to look at this morning, something that I know is, is light and cheery for everybody, and no one's going to have any problem with this. We're just going to talk about hell, okay? And specifically, the idea that a loving God would condemn good people to eternal damnation. Like I said, light and cheery. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 20. And while you're doing that, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to kind of set the tone for this morning. I want to kind of create a baseline. And here's what I mean by that. For many of us, uh, this is a very, this is, this is not just an abstract concept. This is not just a matter of theory or theology or philosophy. For many of us, this is a very personal question. This is very personal because all of us have known people, good people, wonderful people who we know and love. And as far as we know, they either have not or did not ever receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the obvious question and the difficult question is what happens to them? Uh, when I was telling my wife, Carrie, that this is what I was going to be preaching on, I, her initial reaction was, you're probably going to offend me. Because we all know people, people that we know, people that we love. Not just in theory, but names and faces. People that we've lost or people that we love right now. And as far as we know, as far as we can understand and what we've seen in their lives, what they've even told us, we don't know uh, that they've ever received salvation. That they've never um, accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so what do we do with that? What happens to them? And so what I want to suggest this morning is that the starting point for any conversation about hell has to begin and ultimately end with the love of God. Uh, I was talking to uh, a, a gentleman here in the church a couple of weeks ago, and um, I asked if I could share this with, with you all, and, and he was telling me how his father had recently passed away. And as to his knowledge, he did not know that his father had ever become a believer. He had never um, received Jesus Christ as his Lord. And so uh, his dad had died, and then his children, right? So this man who I'm talking to, his kids came to him and said, what about Grandpa? Like, like, what happened to Grandpa? We don't know if he was a Christian. We don't think he was. We don't think he ever believed in Jesus. So what happened to Grandpa? See, this is a very personal question. But I love this brother's response because this is what he said. He said, no one loves Grandpa more than Jesus. And now he's in Jesus' hands. No one, no one loves Grandpa more than Jesus. And now he's in Jesus' hands. That's beautiful. I love that. Because what it communicates is that, that there is a need for humility in this conversation. There's a need for humility because, look, I don't know. I don't know everyone's hearts. I don't know what everyone believes. I don't know what God is doing in people's souls. I don't know how God may be bringing grace and life into someone's whole, uh, soul right up to the moment of their passing. That he may be leading to them to a place of conversion. I don't know what's going on with certainty. I, I can't look out there and say, oh, I know your heart, I know your heart. And so I'm going to be careful not to declare, oh, that person's in heaven, that person's in hell. I don't know that. I'm not God, I'm not the judge. I don't even know my own heart is deceitful above all things. What I do know is that no one loves them more than Jesus. And now they're in Jesus' hands. Now, at the same time, what I can tell you is that there is no one in heaven who deserves to be there. 
Okay, so don't, don't miss this, all right? On the one hand, I want to say, look, I don't know every single person's eternal destinies. I can't make that prediction. I can't call that, all right? That's up to God. He's the judge. He knows how he's working in their life. At the same time, I can tell you that there's no one in heaven who was good enough, who earned their way, and they deserve to be there. There's only one name on the I deserve to be in heaven list, and that's Jesus. For everybody else, it's by grace and through faith, period, always. And so on the one hand, I want to start with this idea that, that Jesus loves them more than anyone. And I don't know how God may be working in someone's heart. I don't. I'm hopeful. I may suspect. I may fear, right? But I keep praying. I keep hoping. I don't know how God is going to work in their life even up to the very last moment. But what I can tell you at the same time, the scripture is so clear about is that no one's there because they were just a good and wonderful person. It's always by grace through faith. But thankfully, we have a God who loves beyond anything that we can imagine. So the starting place for any conversation that we're going to have about hell, it has to start, it has to start with the love of God. All right, so Romans 20, and we're going to look at a difficult passage here. Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation 20. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but this is the passage that's going to kind of frame the rest of our time together. So let me read this for us, okay? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, let me just say that Revelation, uh, this is a notoriously difficult book to, to read and to interpret and to make sense of in some ways, okay? So there's all kinds of imagery. There's all kinds of descriptions that are going on here. Apocalyptic language. And, and it, some of that is difficult to decipher, okay? But what there's no mystery, right? There's no mystery here unless we add one uh, about John's intent about what he's trying to communicate with regard to hell. And so, so for John, understand, um, for John, hell is very real. Like, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do with the imagery, whatever you do with the figurative language and apocalyptic language and all of that, whatever else you do with it, understand that it has a literal reference for John. Okay, so if I call my wife honey... And uh, she is, does that mean that she's sticky and sweet and she's actually made of honey? No, it doesn't. Okay, it's just figurative. But it would be absurd to conclude that just because she's not literally made from honey that she doesn't exist. Okay, so you guys tracking with me? There's this very popular idea that we can read this and go, look, this is just metaphor. This is just allegory. It's not really referring to anything real. But we can't get to that from this text. You can't read this and, and come to that conclusion. John clearly believes that hell is a literal place reserved for people who have rejected the salvation of God. It doesn't matter what the descriptions are, what you make of them. Does that mean that, that it's literally a lake of fire? I have no idea. But what I can tell you is that John believes there's a literal referent involved here. It's referring to something. Hell exists. Hell is real. And so while we can debate about whether it, literally, whether it literally consists of a lake of fire, we can't come to this idea that, that hell is just this imaginary thing, it's just allegory, it's just a, a metaphorical reference to you know, the pain and suffering that we create in this world. 
as nice as that sounds in one sense, understand that we don't get there unless it's coming from an interpretational grid of our own personal and cultural bias. And let me just say, look, I get that. I get that. I understand in one sense why we'd want to to interpret it that way, why we'd want to to see it that way in that light. We don't like this idea that, that God is a God who judges. We don't like the idea that there's eternal punishment for people who've not received the salvation through Christ. We, we like the idea of a loving God, a God who loves us no matter what. We, we love the idea of, of a God who loves us and never judges. And so what we try to do is we try to get rid of hell altogether so that we can let God off the hook as though he ever needs us to do that. And so we try to get rid of hell. We try to write it off. We try to reinterpret it, reimagine it so that God can simply be a God of love and never a judge. So several years ago, I was in uh, Guatemala. I was reading a, leading a, a mission trip down there, and we were working with a school. I was working with impoverished kids, incredible ministry uh, at the time. And, um, and while we were there, uh, they brought in a pastor, a local pastor, from one of the Guatemalan churches, and uh, had him come and share with our team and share with some of the students. And, and, uh, and in this sermon that he gave to us, he was preaching on the prodigal son. And he came to the end, and his conclusion, his final point was that God is a God of love. And never a judge. And I was so stunned in the moment. This was my first time to Guatemala. It was my first time seeing all of this. And I was so shocked. I did not see this coming at all. And to my regret and shame, I did not stand up and say, I'm sorry, but you got that wrong. God is a God of love and a judge. See, judgment is not the opposite of love. In fact, it's God's fierce love that leads him to judge. So let me explain what I mean by that. Look, um, let me be real, real clear about this. When we talk about God loving um, we're not, and, and then judging, we're not talking about how God loves us as his children and then disciplines us to make us more like Christ. That's not the context here. What we're talking about is God fiercely loves, and that actually leads him to judgment. So let me give you a picture of that, all right? Um, if we were to leave here this morning and someone was to attack my wife, All right, we leave here this morning and some guy tries to attack my wife. Understand that my fierce love for my wife will lead me to try to beat that person to within an inch of their life, okay? Not a pacifist, in case you're wondering. It's not where I am, all right? So my fierce love for my wife, what it does not lead me to do, I'm like, oh man, I'm so loving. Babe, I hope this turns out okay for you, all right? Like, I just love you so much, but I'm powerless. I can't do anything. No, It's my fierce love for her that leads me to take whatever I can find and to attack him and beat the tar out of him, okay? That is the fierce love that leads to judgment. So a buddy of mine, he, uh, when living in Dallas, he, uh, when his son was going into middle school, he, he brought his son in. He was brand new going to middle school, new public school. He said, hey, buddy, listen, if you get into a fight, understand you're going to be in so much trouble with me. Like, if you go there and you get into a fight because kids are picking on you, you will be in so much trouble with me. But let me at the same time say, if I find out that you got in a fight defending someone else, here's how this is going to play out. I'm going to show up to your school. We're going to sit in the principal's office while they talk about how bad you are and how you shouldn't be fighting. And then we're going to leave from there. We're going to go get you ice cream, buy you a toy, and whatever computer game you want. Why? Because this is close to the heart of God. This is close to the heart of God. God always defends the defenseless. God always stands up for those who have no voice. This is the pattern throughout Scripture. 
is that God cares for the orphan and the widow, those who can't stand up for themselves. We need a God who is a God of love and a judge. Uh, Scott Sauls is a pastor, and uh, he wrote this recently for the Gospel Coalition, and I really like this. He says, it's too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. For love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, there there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who's been abused or bullied, or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. We need a God who fiercely loves, and it's out of that fierce love that leads him to judge. Um, Now understand this. Look, Look at what else this does. If I know, if I have confidence that God is a God who judges, that God is a God who will stand up and he will bring justice for those of us who are oppressed or have been wronged, then that allows me to turn the other cheek. That's what allows me not to seek retribution. That's what allows me not to retaliate and take matters into my own hands. See, one of the common misconceptions, popular ideas, is that if God is just a God of love, if we just get rid of hell, God is just a God of love, then that will lead me to simply love my enemies. Let me put it the other way. If God is a God who judges, this is the rationale. If God is a God who judges, then if I believe in that kind of God, that's going to lead me to judge. And that justifies me then um, committing acts of discrimination, violence, even murder against people who don't believe the way that I do. That's the rationale. And actually, we see this all over the Middle East, don't we? We see what it looks like when a people decide that they are acting in God's name and they're going to bring judgment on unbelievers. And so what sounds really nice to us is if we can just get rid of this idea that God is a judge, that God punishes people, then we'll just love everybody. If God is just loving, then I'm going to love everybody. And that sounds really nice. We want to put that on a postcard and hang it over our door. It sounds great. The problem is it's completely false. It's completely naive. See, in reality, if I believe that God is only a God of love, that he will never bring justice, then it becomes incumbent upon me to take matters into my own hands. Um, Miroslav Volf, this guy right here, he's a theologian. And uh, he grew up under the communist regime in Yugoslavia, and he saw his family persecuted under communist rule firsthand. His father was a pastor. Uh, He was beaten. He was imprisoned. And then later, with the breakdown of communism and the communist bloc, and as Yugoslavia broke into pieces, he saw firsthand the ethnic cleansing that came with the wars in Bosnia. So this is a guy who has seen violence. He has seen injustice in a way that hopefully none of us ever will. And this is what he says. I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon, you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. This is what he's saying. The idea that God is loving, 
That if God is loving only, that we'll never seek retribution. Man, that sounds great, but it is naive, it is absurd, and in fact, it's dangerous. Because if God is only loving, then it justifies whatever I want to do to seek revenge. To get back at those who've wronged me. Because I can't trust God to do it. See, in reality, we need a God who fiercely loves and judges. And that allows me, that gives me the confidence that I can say, okay, I'm going to turn the other cheek because one day God will bring justice. God will make all things right. And so I don't have to. Right now, look, don't miss this, okay? Because here's the argument. The argument is that if, if God is a judge, if there is a hell and God brings judgment, that that's going to lead his people to then act in judgment, and that will lead to discrimination and violence and murder and all the stuff that we're seeing in the Middle East right now. That's the argument. But understand that in Christianity, the opposite is true. The opposite is true because we serve and we love a God who loves and died for his enemies. That's the pattern. And so as we follow the Lord, right, it becomes incumbent upon us to do as he did, to love and to lay down our lives for our enemies, trusting and knowing that one day God will establish his kingdom and he will bring justice that our hearts crave. See, we need a God who is fiercely loving, who will be a judge. See, the problem with hell is not that it makes God mean, it makes God evil, it's not a problem that, that it, it means that those of us who believe in hell or who, who believe that God judges, that, that we're going to be people who then judge ourselves and we, we go out committing acts of violence. No, it's just the opposite. It's because God is a fiercely loving God who also is a judge, who defends the defenseless, that it demands that we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. It demands that we, like him, should fight against injustice, that we should give voice to the voiceless, that we should protect the widow and the orphan. But at the same time, it gives us the confidence to say, I'm not going to seek my own vengeance. I don't have to retaliate. See, this is the only hope for peace in the world. The only way I'm not going to retaliate, the only way I'm not going to seek to get back at everybody who's ever hurt me is if I know that one day God's going to show up and he's going to make all things right. And that's the beautiful tension. That on the one hand, we can stand up and we can fight those who oppress those who discriminate, those who bring violence against the innocent at the same time, we can turn the other cheek and we can pray for our enemies and love them. We need a God who is fiercely loving and also a judge. All right, let's keep moving. So back to Revelation 20. So here's the other thing I want us to see that John wants us to clearly remember. Whatever you make of the imagery, understand that John has a couple of things here that we should clearly understand. And the, the second thing here is that there is a judgment that's going on. There, there's actual judgment that will one day happen, that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And so here's, here's how he's describing part of it. All right, he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then skip down here. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the picture here that John wants us to understand is that there's two sets of books that we're judged by, that everyone's going to be judged by. And that one of them has everything to do with what we've done, the things we've said, the words we've used, the, the acts we've committed, the, our thoughts, our beliefs, our, how we've treated other people, all of that. And the other one is this book of life. 
And here's where we start to get really uncomfortable. Because it's the book of life that ultimately determines our destiny. Now, here's what I mean. Here's what makes this really uncomfortable. Um, What John's describing here is that God is the ultimate authority. That God has every right to say, this is true, this is false. This is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is bad. That he is the ultimate authority who determines our moral, spiritual, physical realities. And not only that, so we hate that idea, right? We hate the idea that somebody else is determining that for us. Someone else decides that. But not only that, he's then going to hold us accountable by that standard. We don't like that either. And then on top of that, he's going to say, hey, you all come up short. Like every single one of us judged by that criteria of, of right and wrong and good and bad, that he's defined every single one of us, we all come up short, See, what we want to do is we want to push back against God and say, God, no, 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 you understand, I'm pretty good. I'm basically a good person. So I don't deserve hell. I don't deserve judgment because I'm basically good. The problem is that being good is never good enough. This is what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. See, notice that Isaiah says here that even our righteous acts, even the good stuff that we do, he says it's like filthy rags. It's nasty. It's disgusting. You know why? Because we never, apart from the grace of God, we never do anything truly good. You say, no, no, man, I love people and I'm kind, I'm generous. No, actually, we never really do anything that's good. It's always really about us. It's always really about our own ego, about looking good for other ones. It may, might be some pure motive in there, but, but it's never truly pure. There's always myself wrapped into it, my own ego. This is what Jonathan Edwards referred to as self-love. This idea that I'm loving other people, but in fact, I'm really just loving myself. And so I look like I'm loving my kids, and I'm loving my wife, and I'm kind and I'm generous, but actually what I'm most concerned about is how I look to other people. I want people to have a certain perception of me. I want to I feel good about myself. I want other people to like me. I want to make myself happy. And that's just one way that I can do that. See, our motives are never truly pure. The, all the good things that we think we're, we're doing are actually like filthy rags. This is what Isaiah says. See, we want to push back against God and say, God, you just need to lighten up. Right? God, just lighten up. I mean, we're not that bad basically good people don't deserve hell god you just need to lighten up but in reality we know that's not true in reality we know that's not true i mean just just think about it for a moment if there were no guardrails in your life like just imagine this for a moment if there was no guardrails nothing to keep you doing the things that you ought to do Put, put it this way imagine for a moment that there would be no repercussions no punishment you'd never get caught no one would ever know nothing bad would ever come out of it what low would you not stoop to? What would you not do? If you're really honest, is there any depth to which we would not sink if there were no guardrails? It give you give you one thought here. Um, imagine that person who's offended you. Man, maybe they bullied you when you were a kid. Maybe they made your life miserable. Maybe it's somebody who just recently, you know, said something unkind to you or cut you off in traffic. Maybe you don't even know their name, but you've got that face. You've got that name in your head. Man, that person. Now think for a moment. If there was no one who would ever catch you, there would be no judgment, no reprisal, no punishment, nothing bad could ever come of it. How many of us would not want to go and let them have it, right? 
just tear them up one side and down the other. In fact, since we're at it, let's just throw a few punches in there. Maybe kick them a couple of times while they're down. Let's just end them with our car while we're at it, okay? There's no way anyone's going to catch you. And some of you are like, no, that's sick. I would never do that. Now you're lying. Our hearts crave sin. Our hearts crave sin. There is no depth to which we wouldn't sink without guardrails. There's nowhere that we wouldn't be willing to go. That's how dark our hearts are. There's no punishment that God wants to, uh, there's no judgment that God would bring upon us that we don't completely deserve. And that's why we have to have two sets of books. This is a blessing that we have two sets of books because on the one hand, you've got these books that are judging us according to all the things that we've done and we all come up short. Nobody comes out ahead. All of us have fallen far, far short. And so we've got this other set of, this other book right here, the book of life. And this is the one for the people who say, God, you've got my number. You know it. You're right. God, you are the one who establishes right and wrong. You are the one who establishes all reality. And you're right. I fall far, far short. And God, I need you to rescue me. I need your grace. I need you to come in and save me. This is what the apostle John excuse me, Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This idea of what are we earning with our lives? We like to think we're like storing up brownie points. We're making God happy. He says, no, 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 the wages of sin is death. All these things that you think that you're doing that are so good, that you're actually doing for yourself, you are just storing up wrath. You are storing up death. Your 401k is full of judgment. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what offends us most of all. This is what offends us most of all. The idea that salvation is a gift, that it's by grace. Because if salvation is by grace alone and by faith alone, then it's nothing that I've earned, it's nothing that I deserve. I didn't save myself, which means that I'm not God. Which means that I don't have the authority, the the right to determine reality for myself. I don't have the right to determine this is right and this is wrong. I don't get to make that call. And God has saved me purely out of grace and love. And that means that I owe God everything, my very life. There's nothing that he can't ask of me, right? The very idea of grace is what offends us. Um, it's, it's like at the end of, of Les Mis, anybody read, seen that movie? Um, nobody reads anymore. I should just ask you if you've seen the movie. Um, at the end of it, right, Javert, he takes his own life. Why? Because he cannot stand the idea that he would owe his life to Jean Valjean who spared him. His life is there only as a gift, only out of mercy, only out of grace. And he cannot stomach the idea that he didn't deserve it, that he didn't do anything to earn it, that it's just a gift. And so he takes his own life. See, this offends us. We hate this idea that God has to save us because then I'm not a God. What kind of a God can't save himself? And if I'm not God, that means I don't get to determine my reality, my morality, my physicality, anything like that. Everything is determined by God. I'm not my own ultimate authority. I'm not autonomous. And God has every right to walk into my life where I'm seated comfortably on the throne to look at me and say, hey, get out of my chair. Seriously, you're in my seat. You need to move. See, that's what offends us. That's what offends us, that the salvation is is a gift and it's grace. And it means that God is God and I'm not God. That's what offends us most of all. It's not hell. Hell's just a byproduct of that. 
And maybe some of us, it really, it really gets to us, and, and I hope this is the case for some of us, that it really gets to us this idea that people don't know Jesus and therefore they're dying apart from him and they could suffer an eternity in hell. That bothers us. That's, that's a good thing. That should bother us. But understand that for most of us, that's just a smoke screen. That's just what we throw up to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. What really bothers us is that I don't get to define my own life. I don't get to determine right and wrong for me. It, I can't live just out of personal experience. And so, like, kids who refuse to quit playing dress-up, we just keep pretending and pretending and pretending that we're gods, and we keep resisting and resisting and resisting God. And here's what's truly tragic. If we really understood how much God loved us, we wouldn't fight. We wouldn't resist. If we really understood, if we even got just like a taste of how much God loves us, then we would quit resisting. We quit fighting back. We quit acting like children going, no, no, I'm going to be God. I want to be God. I want my way. If we just saw how much he truly loved us. It's like with my kids, you know, I'm trying to like train them and raise them. And so I'm giving them instruction and they're fighting back. And I'm like, no, no, look, you, you need to clean your room. No, I don't want to clean my room. You need to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed. And I just want to be like, look, if you just understood how much I love you, Like, if you had any grasp of how much I long for your good, that I would do anything for you, I would die for you, then you would eat your vegetables. (laughs) You would clean your room if you just had just a taste of how much I love you. I had had these kids when I was in youth ministry. They would come and they complain about their parents. Be like, oh man, my parents are so mean. They won't let me do this and they won't let me wear this and they won't let me stay out this long. And I'd say, hey man, I get that. I understand that. Your parents can be tough. That's, that's hard. Let's just start here though. Your parents love you more than you can possibly imagine. Like you have, you're 15, all right? You have no clue how much your parents love you. All right, so let's just start there. I'm not saying they love you perfectly. I'm not saying they make all the right calls, but let's start at that place that your parents love you more than you can possibly imagine. And that's where we have to start, that God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And if we had even just a whiff of his love, just a taste of it, it would transform our hearts and we would quit fighting back. And we say, okay, God, you are God. You know what's best. I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna submit to you. I'm going to do what you say because you love me more than I can. I I can't even fathom it. I mean, do you see the irony of this? Look, we are fighting so hard. We are fighting so hard to be gods. All the things that our hearts crave. We want the power. We want the authority. We want the, the rights that only God has. And all this time, Jesus, who has all of those rights, he lays them down. Philippians 2, he empties himself so that he can become one of us and to save us from the hell that we deserve. Do you see that? That is amazing love. That is amazing love. And if we got just a taste of that, if we saw even just a little bit of that and allowed that to, man, impact our hearts, then we would quit fighting. We'd quit resisting. Um, the band is going to come back up. I'll let them, them come up. And I just want to close with a couple of thoughts here. Um, the first is this. Look, for, for some of you, uh, probably a good number of you in here, this, this is, none of this is new. You're like, yeah, I've heard this before. I, I've, I've wrestled with some of this stuff. And you know what? I believe the Bible, and so I believe in hell, and I, I understand the need for God's judgment, and that's great. And so my challenge, my question for you is just this. Who, who are you sharing your faith with? 
I mean, seriously, like if you get this and you're sitting there going, man, I don't even know why I'm listening to this. Look, if you believe that there's literally a hell where people are going to be separated from God, if they don't come to repentance in Jesus Christ, then who are you telling that to? Like, who are you sharing your faith with? Who are you trying to introduce Jesus to? Man, we have to be about that. If that's what we believe, like, how can we do anything else? Uh, for, for others of you, and, and I truly, in one sense, I hope that there's some of you who, who are real, really struggling with this, um, that for you, hell is an offense, this idea that God would judge. But I, I, want you to, I want you to understand that we need a God who is fiercely loving. We need a God who will judge, who will stand up for the defenseless. We need a God who loves his children enough to protect them. And so the real question is, do you know God's love? Have you experienced that? Are you still trying so hard to be your own God, trying to to define your own reality, your own morality? This is what's right and wrong for me. Nobody else gets to say that. Do you see that everything that you're fighting so hard for, Jesus laid down just so that he could save you? That's love. That's how much he loves us. If we just... Man, we just get a taste of that. It would change everything for us. We quit fighting. And we just, and we bask in his love.